Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Dylan Selterman, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology at the University of Maryland. He is a social and personality psychologist by training who studies topics relating to attraction and dating, romantic relationships, sexuality, and dreaming. He also writes a blog for Psychology Today that is well worth checking out. I'm so excited to talk to Dylan because he has so many fascinating lines of research. So many, in fact, that I'm recording two episodes with him. Today, we're going to be discussing his research on cheating and infidelity. And in the next episode, we're going to be discussing his research on dreams. You're definitely not going to want to miss that one because I've been wanting to do an episode on sexual and romantic dreams for a long time. And being able to talk to a dream researcher is kind of a dream come true. But today's episode is all about cheating and infidelity. We're going to take you inside an affair and talk about what people do, say, and feel when they commit infidelity and also why they cheat in the first place. In addition, we're going to talk about when affairs lead to breakup and when they don't. This is going to be a fascinating conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Dylan, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. It's always great to chat with you. Now, before we begin, I always like to ask my guests to tell us a little bit about their professional journey. So how did you become a social and personality psychologist, and specifically one who does a lot of work in the area of sexuality and relationships? Yeah. When it comes to my personal journey, I think it was really college that had the most impact on my career because before that, I didn't really know that this was a field of scientific research. I always thought that psychology was just within the purview of philosophy and that people could come up with ideas that made sense to them, ideas that seemed logical, and then that was just the truth. And it wasn't until I got to college where I took some courses with uh, it. Well, I, I had a bunch of psych teachers that I really liked, but the one in particular who made the most impact on me was Steve Pagodas. He became my advisor and my mentor. And I began to see folks like him doing actual research that involved empirical methods to study human nature. And he in particular was a social psychologist that focused on relationships and, and sex research. So I joined his lab and started to work on a senior thesis that involved romantic relationships and dreaming, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about. And that really set me on the path to where I am today. And I went to grad school at Stony Brook University. I studied with Everett Waters and Art Aaron, and they're also big relationships researchers, studying attachment theory, studying intimacy. And I got to do more research on dreams. And it was actually my research on dreams that sparked my interest in studying infidelity, because I found in some of those samples that I had collected, that infidelity was a big theme in people's dreams. When they were dreaming about romance and sex, they were very often in situations of infidelity or dreaming about their partner's infidelity. So that was a 
nice motivating factor for me to get into this field of research on infidelity. So interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So since you brought up cheating and infidelity, let's talk about that. You've done a lot of work in this area. And in fact, you and I have collaborated on this before. In fact, we have a whole book chapter on infidelity and same-sex relationships that we co-authored that's coming out soon. And we might talk about that a little bit later today. But as a starting point for any discussion about cheating and infidelity, I like to step back and ask the big picture question of, okay, so as somebody who studies infidelity, how do you define cheating? You know, so what is it that we're talking about here? Yeah, well, that is a $64,000 question. And I think one <laughs> way to answer it is to say that infidelity involves some kind of romantic or sexual rule breaking. So couples make whatever rules they deem appropriate. Sometimes they don't make rules at all. And sometimes it's more free for all. But often, couples will make rules about what is okay, what is not okay, within the boundaries of social or sexual monogamy. So if a rule is broken, that often constitutes infidelity. When you're in a sexually exclusive relationship with someone and you have sex with another person outside of that relationship, that could be infidelity. If you have an emotionally exclusive relationship and you fall in love romantically with someone else, that could be infidelity. Infidelity could include going on dates. It could include sexual intercourse, could include kissing. It could include pornography. There's you know, p- potentially dozens of different activities or behaviors or feelings or fantasies that could be considered infidelity. I think when most people consider infidelity in the realm of their own personal relationships, usually they're talking about sex and love. Usually they're talking about physical actions with another partner, kissing, grouping, intercourse, and or falling deeply, passionately in love with another person. Those are, I think, the most common ways in which people conceptualize infidelity in their own relationships. Yeah, so different people have different definitions. And it's also true that different researchers have different definitions too. And you and I found this in reviewing the literature in this area that it's often hard to compare one study to another if the researchers took like totally different definitions of infidelity in the first place. And it's really important to understand and discuss that definitional issue because depending on the way that you define infidelity, you're going to get drastically different estimates for how many people have done it before. So in one review paper that I've seen on this topic, estimates of infidelity ranged from low single digit percentages to more than 80% depending on how you define it, right? And so the broader your definition of infidelity is, you know, the more likely it is you're going to have people agreeing to it and get high numbers. But if you take a more restricted or narrow definition, such as sexual intercourse with someone other than your exclusive relationship partner, then you're going to get lower numbers there. So, you know, the numbers are just all over the board when you look at the literature. But one question I commonly get is, okay, so how many people do have sexual intercourse with someone other than their partner when they're in a monogamous relationship? And the numbers are pretty reliably between one in four and one in five if you're looking at married couples. But if you're looking at dating couples, the numbers tend to be higher than that. So 
it's one of those things where it's hard to peg like a specific number because it depends on the definition. It depends on the type of relationship you're looking at. But something I want to ask you is, you know, since we're talking about cheating and infidelity, you've done some work looking at what motivates people to do this in the first place. So what are some of the more common reasons why people commit infidelity? Yeah, happy to talk about that before we get there. Thinking about the prevalence of infidelity, it's even more complicated by the fact that there's often motivated reasoning going on. And sometimes couples don't agree whether there was an instance of infidelity. One person says, ah, but you kissed that other person. And then they said, well, we were on a break then. It didn't really count or something along those lines. So you're, you're often going to get a significant amount of disagreement within couples about that. And as for the most common reasons why people cheat, this has been a prevalent theoretical perspective for decades, the idea of the deficit hypothesis, the notion that when there are things not going well in the relationship, so if they're angry at their partner, if they're feeling sexual frustration, if they're feeling emotional neglect or a lack of love, then that can lead to infidelity. But I want to put a caveat on that, which is that sometimes people can feel worse about their relationships after they commit infidelity. So if we're, lo- if we're looking at cross-sectional studies, sometimes they'll show a correlation, but that doesn't mean that one necessarily leads to another. So there's a kind of chicken and an egg problem going on there. And aside from the motivations for infidelity that have to do with things not going very well in the relationship, Sometimes people have personal motivations that could include motivations involving self-esteem, motivations including wanting a higher social status, motivations including situational factors like feeling stressed out or intoxicated or just you're not feeling like your usual self. Maybe you're on vacation or you're in some other type of abnormal situation. Or you're locked down for a year. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, COVID. So I would suggest that there's two broad categories and then lots of sub factors within those categories. So one one set of factors would be having to do with the relationship and another having to do with pertaining to yourself or other aspects of the situation you're in. Yeah, so cheating is one of these things where I think people would assume it's kind of an easy thing to study and that there's commonality and motives. But when you start diving into this area, you see that it's very complex. There are lots of different factors that can be linked to infidelity. It's not always just about sex. It's not always about a problem in the relationship. And in fact, there are some studies that have actually found that the more sexually satisfied somebody is with their partner, actually, the more likely they are to report cheating, which a lot of people think, gosh, that that doesn't make sense. That doesn't add up. And that speaks to the fact that infidelity has very diverse motivations. And I wrote a piece for Men's Health a couple of years ago where I interviewed a number of sex therapists about what they're seeing in their therapy offices when clients come in talking about infidelity. And what they find is that you have a lot of people who are in sexually satisfying relationships. They're happy with their partner. They love their partner, but then they still end up cheating. And when you start looking at some of the motivations behind it, you see that, for example, in some cases, it's about a search for the self, you know, and it's that, you know, sort of very personal motive. I also remember a story a therapist told me about a client who had an extensive military career and he was no longer in the military, but he was in this relationship 
loved his spouse. They were having great sex all the time, but he was constantly cheating on her. And when they started looking at, so why is this happening? It turned out that this client had this very paralyzing fear of death from his experience mm. being in the military where every day he thought this was going to be his last. And he found that sex was the only thing that really made him feel alive and helped him to deal with that really severe form of death anxiety. And so it wasn't him cheating because there was a problem in the relationship. It was because he was coping with this stress and anxiety. So I just think it's so fascinating when we're talking about cheating and infidelity to not oversimplify it and look at these complex, diverse motives. It sounds like a very psychoanalytic motivation <laughs> for infidelity, thinking about death and then, oh, I want to have lots of sex to basically do the denial of death kind of thing. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's funny, um, but, ser but serious in a way, if, if that, you know, that person in, in the situation you're describing is overcome with this existential anxiety that can promote infidelity in a way that has nothing to do with the relationship. And I think that's a key insight for people to take home is that we often tend to think that if our spouses or partners cheat on us, it must mean there's something wrong with the relationship. There's something wrong with me. There's something you know that I did that was wrong. And there are often feelings of anger towards partners who cheat, but also feelings of guilt and feelings of inadequacy. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be a reflection on you or a reflection on the relationship. As you said, sometimes it's about the search for the self. And I think a lot of people who are in that situation where they're cheating in an otherwise happy relationship believe that it's not actually a problem. And the problem may be that we have constructed social definitions of monogamy that are just not conducive to what people's needs are. And so they're straying. And I don't want to excuse this behavior because I do think it is a moral transgression, but perhaps not a moral transgression that should warrant such an extreme response. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. And it is so interesting the ways that different people view infidelity. And for some people, this is the absolute worst thing that your partner could do to you. Whereas to others, it's not as big of a deal. And so, you know, there are wide individual differences in terms of sort of that value that people place on monogamy and fidelity. And that's part of the reason why cheating has such disparate effects on people's relationships. Now, something else you've also found in your research is that there are some differences across people in terms of why they cheat. The differences relating to their gender, to their attachment style, to the general beliefs that they hold about relationships. And I know we could do like a whole episode just diving into that because there are a lot of findings there. But just a couple of broad strokes. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the different factors in terms of why people cheat, maybe say based on gender? So how are men's motivations different from women's? Sure. Well, at least in some of the young adult samples that I've collected, the men are more likely than women to be motivated by sex and specifically wanting to have more sexual partners or different kinds of sex. And women are more likely to be motivated by some relationship deficit, feeling neglected, feeling a lack of love, that kind of thing. With regards to other individual differences, sociosexuality is a big variable in the data sets that I've collected. So this is the tendency for people to 
basically dissociate sex from love in their minds. So people who are unrestricted in their sociosexuality tend to think of sex and love as very different things. And if they are seeking lots of sex, they're more likely to cheat in that context. People who are more restricted in their sociosexuality tend to strongly associate sex with love, so they really need to feel a strong bond to people in order to want to experience sex in that context. So unsurprisingly, people who are high in sociosexuality tend to be more strongly motivated to cheat on their partners when they're specifically looking for greater sexual variety. They are less likely to cheat as a function of situational variables, like being on vacation or being stressed or being drunk or something like that. Mm-hmm. It sounds like your cat has lots of thoughts on infidelity. <laughs> 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 but we have much more to discuss, including the most common intimate behaviors that occur during an affair, which will probably surprise you, what happens after an affair, and how many people stay together when an affair is discovered. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sex and Psychology podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. Vitaflux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. Promescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Dylan Selterman. So Dylan, let's talk about this recent paper you published that looks at what people do say and feel during an affair. So what do people do during an affair? You know, I think a lot of people assume it's all intercourse all the time. But what you find in your research is that there's a lot of diversity and variability in intimate behavior. So what are some of the most common intimate behaviors that take place during an affair? And what does that maybe tell us about the reasons why people are cheating? Yeah, well, it's similar to the breakdown that we see in the research on general hookups. So generally speaking, when people are having a hookup, they're, they're doing a lot of kissing that appears, you know, 80 to 90% of the time in some samples. With regards to things like oral sex, intercourse, either vaginal or anal intercourse, we see lower rates. So somewhere between 50 to 60% will have some sexual touching above and below the waist, and then 30 to 40% oral sex, and, and somewhere around that in terms of intercourse. And the sample that I collected, it was a little bit higher. So we have 40 to 50% reporting oral sex, and then about 50 to 55% for vaginal or anal intercourse. And then there's going to be, of course, 5 to 10% who are not reporting any type of physical or sexual activities. So in terms of what people are doing, it's not always about sex, like you said. 
And people are also engaging in lots of intimate dialogue. So somewhere around a third of participants in my sample reported having intimate conversations. Two thirds approximately reported some sexually explicit dialogue. They're expressing fondness and affection. Rarely, though, do they say, I love you. That is only about 10% of participants in the sample that I collected. So going that far on an affair seems to be less common, but certainly some emotional engagement with affair partners is common. Yeah. So it's so interesting when you look at that breakdown and you see that kissing was actually the most common intimate behavior intercourse isn't always present. There's a lot of intimate dialogue and discussion. And I think all of that speaks to the fact that there are very diverse motives for infidelity. And sometimes it's about meeting a sexual need. Sometimes it's about meeting an emotional need. Sometimes it's just about something else entirely. So in this work, you also looked at the link between affairs and breakup. And my recollection is that you found that about half of people broke up But among those who did, you know, they were kind of split between those who actually broke up because of the affair and then those who broke up for some other reason, which tells us that, you know, affairs are sometimes a symptom of a bigger, deeper problem in the relationship. And so, you know, the affair wasn't really the thing that led to the breakup. It was, you know, some deeper, longstanding issue in the relationship. And for those who stayed together, you know, they're pretty split between the ones who did find out about the affair and those who didn't, right? So it's this really interesting mixed bag in terms of what happens after an affair. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of, you know, when are affairs likely to lead to breakup and when are people more likely to resolve them and stay together? Sure. Well, this set of results actually ties in nicely to our earlier discussion about the motivations people have for infidelity. So among those who reported breaking up with their partners following the affair, they reported significantly higher motivations for infidelity based on relationship deficits. So they were more likely to express that they were angry at their partners, that they felt a lack of love, that they felt neglected, and less likely to say they were motivated by some situational factor like being on vacation or being drunk. So I agree that there's kind of the chicken or an egg thing going on. And it could be that, as you said, infidelity was more a symptom of systemic underlying problems in the relationship. And then they broke up specifically because of either the affair or that there was just, you know, incompatibility or too much conflict or something along those lines. What I thought was also interesting is that the people who reported those kinds of dyadic motivations, the anger, the lack of love, the neglect, were more likely to tell their partners about their affairs and also more likely to break up. So it seems like they're realizing the relationship is not going to work out and are just being honest with their partner about it. In some cases, maybe they're not caring very much about their partner's feelings In some cases, maybe they want to rub it in. This is a little bit speculative. We didn't collect data on the motivations for disclosing. But certainly that is consistent with the other results we have, especially the motivations around neglect and anger. And among those people who stayed together with their significant others after the affair, they were less likely to disclose the 
affair. And perhaps they were feeling like this was a mistake and they do in fact want to preserve the relationship and are, you know, hoping that their partners won't discover it and they can go on having a quote unquote happy relationship. Uh, so you're right. There's a lot of differences here in terms of the the outcomes and the behaviors that people engage in while they're having their affairs and and how that connects to the initial motivations for those affairs. Yeah, my next question was going to be about the affair disclosure and kind of like who does it and why. So you read my mind there. Thanks for sharing that. And I think that's really interesting about sort of the revenge motivation for having an affair. You know, I think a lot of people might look at well, when affairs are disclosed, it, it's probably about somebody wanting to to work on the relationship and overcome the infidelity. But in some cases, there might be this really vengeful motivation behind it where they cheated and then they're telling their partner about it because they want to hurt their partner. And you're right, we need more research on that. But anecdotally, like I know some people who have done that. So I do know that it does happen. But I would be curious to know kind of like what is the actual prevalence of that? I was going to say another thing that may be motivating people who had these more situational motivations to have affairs and then want to preserve their relationships is because the affair wasn't all that satisfying. And they realized just, you know, how good their partners were. We did see in this data set a correlation that suggests people who are more motivated by situational variables have less satisfying sex with their affair partners. And that is something that we would expect if you have, let's say, a one-time hookup with someone and you don't really take time to get to know each other and understand sexual likes and dislikes, understand each other's bodies. The sex probably isn't going to be that good. So if people are having these short-term affairs, they're not motivated by dyadic factors like anger or neglect then they realize the affair wasn't that great and they think, okay, this was a mistake and my partner is, you know, better than I realized and the relationship is worth preserving. Yeah. And that gets at such an important, provocative and controversial point, which is that sometimes a relationship can actually come out stronger after a case of infidelity because for example maybe it leads them to realize what they have with their partner and it leads to this reprioritization of the relationship and so yeah there there can be these cases where a couple emerges stronger from infidelity than they otherwise would have been had the infidelity not occurred right so again the effects of affairs and their disclosure on the relationship can be drastically different from one person to the next now, most of the research that you've done in this area and that exists in the broader literature is based on infidelity in heterosexual or mixed sex relationships. And I talked earlier about how we wrote this chapter on infidelity in same-sex relationships. And one of the interesting things for me in writing that chapter was discovering just how hard it was to get a prevalence estimate for infidelity in same-sex relationships, because almost all of the research in that area has conflated being in a sexually open relationship with committing infidelity, because they ask these super generic questions that don't allow you to distinguish between those two things. And we know that open relationships are more common in the LGBTQ community, but researchers often haven't made an attempt to separate them out from people who are committing infidelity or looking at what does infidelity look like 
in the context of an open relationship. So that was one of the more interesting things for me in writing that chapter. So I'm curious, was there anything that stood out to you when writing that chapter about how infidelity is similar or different in, say, a same-sex relationship compared to a mixed-sex relationship? Yeah, I think one of the points that we made, and this could be based on empirical research or a little bit on qualitative research, is that for folks who are not heterosexual, their affairs tends to be something that it has less detrimental effects on the relationship. And that, I think, is an interesting finding because it suggests that there's different social roles that non-heterosexual people have in their relationships. And if there is an incident of cheating or infidelity, it doesn't have to cause this kind of mass devastation that we're seeing in heterosexual couples. And I think there's some there's some good wisdom there. And again, this is not to, to excuse people who cheat. I do think it is a moral transgression. But as I said before, I don't think it needs to be an unmitigated disaster in a relationship. I think that it can be something that couples can work through. And as you said just a minute ago, become even stronger. And if non-heterosexual folks are able to do that, especially living in a context where their relationships are more heavily stigmatized, I think that sends an important signal to everybody else that this is well within our grasp. Yeah. And I think that's a great point to end on. Uh, I know we could go on talking about this for hours because you have so many fascinating insights and have done a lot of great research in this area. So thank you for this amazing conversation. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about your work if they want to read more about the research themselves? Sure. Um, My website is dylanselterman.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Selter Mosby. And thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. Thanks for being here. And also be sure to check out Dylan's blog on psychology today. Thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.